All dreams come from the gods. It's a message. But what? What did you dream? A man. I've seen him somewhere. What man? Here in Jerusalem. A Judean. You'll be able to kill him. You must. You must. Come. Calm down. Calm down. Who will urge me? Did the dream give you his name? This dream is a warning. Hello everyone, it's Mark Goodacre here. Welcome to the NT Pod, the podcast all about the New Testament and Christian origins. It's episode 31, and today we're looking at the Passion of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. This is the second of our Passion Week podcasts in 2010, in which I'm exploring all four of the Gospel Passion narratives. And we began with Mark for obvious reasons, because I'm with the majority in this one, in thinking that Mark is the first Gospel. And so by looking at Mark, you can get a feel for what the other evangelists have done in their in basing their accounts on Mark. I think Matthew's interesting in being very close to Mark of the four passion narratives. The two that are closest together are Mark's and Matthew's. The whole structure of Matthew's passion narrative is very similar indeed to the structure of Mark's. And there's only a few little things missing. I mean, Matthew, for example, loses Mark 14, 51 to 52, which is that story about the young man running away naked in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he doesn't have one or two little things like that. And he does add a few things as well. But when he adds them, he adds them Uh, sort of into the Markan structure, but then he returns back to the Markan structure straight away afterwards. So he's keeping quite tightly to it, and Mark does provide the model for what he's doing. You might say that the major thing that Matthew adds is the story of the death of Judas. That's that's one of the only whole passages that gets added to the Markan account. And typically of Matthew, one of the things he's doing here is filling in the gaps in Mark's account, because you get to the end of Mark's gospel, and there's no hint of what happens to Judas Judas afterwards. And so what Matthew does is he he has this story about how Judas ends up hanging himself through remorse for what he's for what he's done, but otherwise not a great deal of extra whole passages in Matthew's passion narrative. One of the things he does do is he enhances the drama in Mark's account. And and sometimes this is done in quite subtle ways that that can get missed. One of the ways that I think is quite interesting is that Matthew likes to turn what is often narrative in Mark's gospel into direct speech in his own gospel. So in Mark 14, 1, for example, you get a little typical bit of narrative where Mark says it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But in Matthew in 26 two, he turns it into Jesus's own speech. He says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's one of the reasons that Matthew makes better drama than Mark's passion narrative does, because dramatists, of course, always want to put as much material into the mouths of the characters as they can, rather than have it in the mouth of a narrator. And you you can see it over one of the most famous lines in anywhere in the Gospels, uh, the line where in Matthew twenty six twenty seven, which is in the, uh, the the story of the, the the Eucharist, the first Eucharist, Jesus says, "Drink, drink of it, all of you." The exhortation to drink of the cup. This is Matthew's uh, turning of of Mark's narrative. They all drank of it into direct speech. So it's something that causes Matthew to be much easier to kind of script as a little bit of uh, drama. 
And there are other respects as well in which the drama is enhanced in Matthew's Gospel. One of them, which is really dramatic, is the whole question of the centurion's confession in Mark's Gospel. You might remember this in the previous NT pod. I talked a little bit about the centurion's confession in Mark and, and suggested that even the term centurion's confession perhaps isn't quite right because in Mark's Gospel, it's most likely a dark and ironic, perhaps a sarcastic cry. It's only the reader that can see the true meaning of what the, the centurion has said about uh, being the, about Jesus being the Son of God. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, he's having none of that. In Matthew's Gospel, it very clearly is a confession of faith. And whereas in Mark, there's no reason for the centurion to make that confession as a positive confession, in Matthew, there's every reason for him to make it as a positive confession. Because in Matthew's Gospel, unlike in Mark, there's at this moment an earthquake a massive earthquake and, and at the moment of Jesus' death and then people rise up from their tombs and appear to people in Jerusalem and it's when the centurion and those with him because it's plural in, in Matthew it's when these people see these things that they make the confession that Jesus is the son of God so a greatly enhanced amount of drama it's an interesting story that one is because it's one of those stories that is frankly the most difficult to accept as history, probably anywhere in the Gospels, because it's very difficult to imagine this as a kind of literal description of something that was going on at Jesus' death, these people rising up out of the tombs like zombies and appearing to people. And most people see it as a kind of breaking in of apocalyptic kind of motifs, a kind of earth-shattering sort of metaphorical way of describing what Jesus's death involved but it's kind of seeped into the narrative and become part of that narrative and told as if it's part of the story. Another interesting little embellishment in Matthew's account and a little extra that isn't there in Mark is the extraordinary story of Pilate's wife's dream and uh, I had a little clip at the beginning of today's episode from The Passion, the BBC HBO drama that uh, was uh, was broadcast, first broadcast in 2008 and uh, since it's the only time I'm ever likely to be involved with a major production, I always like to uh, throw it in that even though it was a small uh, role, I did have a little bit of a role in that drama. And one of the things that the writer, the late Frank Deasy, who sadly died last year, one of the things that the writer wanted to do was to try and make the character of Pilate just like the character of Caiaphas, three-dimensional. He wanted to get the viewer to understand what the motivations of these people were. And one of the ways that he did it is he gave them both prominent wives. And the thing is, the account in Matthew's Gospel gives you the invitation to do that because Matthew has this little account about how Pilate's wife, she's not named in, in Matthew's Gospel, but later tradition made her Claudia. Matthew introduces this little piece so that you get an extra bit of kind of anxiety, drama, stress going on. And the other thing that it does in Matthew's Gospel is it, it further emphasizes the innocence of Jesus. It's one of those portents, one of the, a, a dream that's, that's warning them about taking a particular course of action. And it's interesting how it functions in Matthew's Gospel because we've we've already seen in Mark that there's a big stress on the innocence of Jesus and this carries over into Matthew and if anything is enhanced, there's not just not just that element of Pilate's wife wife's dream, but also you've got a big public act of Pilate declaring that Jesus is innocent because in Matthew's Gospel Pilate washes his hands 
publicly of this thing, declaring that Jesus is innocent. So it's really underlining this this thing. And the troubling element here, especially for us reading in a kind of post-Holocaust post-Holocaust world, is seeing the way that the blame does seem to be shifted onto Jewish leaders, that there's much more stress on the Jewish leaders as being at fault in this than there are in, in the Roman officials. And it can't but trouble us when we read texts in Matthew's account, like in 27-25, you have the people in the crowd saying, his blood be on us and on our children. I can't read that line without wincing because it was used by Nazis in the in the period leading up to the Holocaust and in the Holocaust, it was, it was the most appalling charge that they used. They took that verse and they used it against Jews. And I think we are right to be troubled by that kind of material. I think one thing that without trying to let the evangelists off the hook here and let Matthew off the hook here, I think one thing that is important to note is that in Matthew's gospel, in the passion narrative, blood is actually about forgiveness. It's not about condemnation. So Matthew twenty six twenty eight, again at the Last Supper, when you have mention of blood, it's all about the blood of the covenant, which bring, brings forgiveness of sins for many. So I think one should perhaps, if one is going to think about the way that blood is used in Matthew's passion narrative, one should look at that kind of primary motive of it being something that is connected with forgiveness and not something that's connected in any way with condemnation. But nevertheless, I'm not trying to shy away from the genuine trouble and harm that that verse has caused. And my own feeling is one should never use it in a dramatic retelling of the passion. In fact, in that BBC HBO passion, we didn't use that line, unlike the Mel Gibson Passion of the Christ, which went for a kind of an uneasy compromise where it kept the line in there in Aramaic, Caiaphas saying it in Aramaic, but they didn't add a subtitle to it. I think it'd be much better just to leave it out of the thing because it's too harmful in the potential implications that it can have in our post-Holocaust world. But perhaps the real difference more than anything else between Mark's passion narrative and Matthew's is that whereas Mark's ends in this really strange, bizarre, very, very sudden way in Mark 16.8 where the women just run away and don't say anything to anyone for they're afraid, in Matthew's gospel you have what we've come to regard in later Christian history as a kind of proper account of the resurrection. Mark's account, it's, it's shocking to us because it's so brief, so abrupt, and doesn't end with any kind of hallelujahs or anything like this. It just ends with the women running away from the tomb, and you wonder what on earth's going on there. I suspect that Matthew shared our own concern and surprise about Mark's ending, and I'm assuming here that Mark's gospel does originally end at 16 verse 8, as lots of the most reliable manuscripts have. I think Matthew probably shared that, and so he writes um, not just the empty tomb story following Mark, but also he has the first appearances to the disciples. And the gospel ends with this glorious great commission of Jesus in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, where he sums up everything that you've seen in the gospel. And he has the disciples commanded from a mount in Galilee, because they've returned to Galilee. He has them commanded to make disciples of all the nations, preaching them, teaching them to do what he, Jesus, has commanded of them. And you have the first sign of this Trinitarian kind of formula, what, what later would become the kind of mainstay of the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as, as the kind of baptismal formula there. So you have this great commission, 
and and this sense of Jesus as one who has authority and who promises to be with people to the end of time. And there, the promise that Jesus will be with people brings together the beginning and the end of of the gospel. Because right at the beginning of the gospel, it was said that Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us. And now Jesus at the end of the gospel is saying that I will be with you always, even to the end of time. Well, thanks for listening to the latest episode of the NT Pod, the second of our four on the Passion Narratives and the Gospels. I'll be along again soon with the next one, which will be on Luke's Passion Narrative. And uh, as usual, you can find me on the web at podacre.blogspot.com, on iTunes or Duke's iTunes U, or you can follow me on Twitter at Godacre. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be with you again soon.